Thank you. Thank you, Victor. As we see the changing of the guard from Andrew to Victor, I trust you'll get to know him in due time. Today we have the pleasure of looking at a psalm that looks at nearly all the great themes of the Bible and does so just in 13 verses. So if you'll turn with me to the psalm, it's Psalm 85, Psalm 85, we'll come back to Isaiah 57 later on, but Psalm 85, which is found at the bottom of page 587, 587, page 587, Psalm 85. And we start by, if you'll look on the outline uh, of the talk, we're going to start off by looking at the psalm itself, which, as you can see there, I've broken into four sections. And we'll go through them in turn to get the psalmist's message first up before looking at the large themes that this psalm contains. The first section, verses 1 to 3, is when he reminds God of the former mercies. Verse 1, Lord, you were favourable to your land, you restored the fortunes of Jacob, you forgave the iniquity of your people, you covered all their sin, you withdrew all your wrath, you turned from your hot anger. There's no particular historical reference point in this psalm. It could be referring to any number of the moments in the history of Israel. Uh, This is, in one sense, like a history lesson in one paragraph of the people of Israel because from the time Joshua conquered the land to the hope-filled days of the early kings to the corrupt days of the latter kings to the return under Ezra and Nehemiah, It was the message of every age of prophets, the same message. This psalm fits any part of the history of Israel. For the psalmist is not really interested in the history per se, rather he's reminding Yahweh of his favourable treatment, how in the past he showed mercy. In the past he showed mercy to his people, forgiving their iniquity, covering over their sin, withdrawing his wrath, turning aside his anger from them and restoring the land to his people. And the psalmist is reminding God of his mercies because he's going to ask for them again. God, this is what you've done in the past. Please do it now for us. He's going to ask for them again because his hope is in the God who has done it in the past and could do it again now. And in the future. So the second portion of the of the psalm is verses four to seven, which is the plea for revival. Verse four Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Restore us again is the request of verse 4. Revive us again is the question of verse 5. The restoration is the same as the past. God putting aside, putting away his indignation and anger. And revival is the same as the past. God bringing life to his people once more. The longing is for change. That the present situation will not continue forever. 
but that God's anger will cease and that God will restore, God will revive. The power of the psalmist's argument is in the questions he asks in verses 5 and 6. The persistent rhetorical questioning of God. Will you, verse 5? Will you, verse 5? Will you not, verse 6? Topped and tailed by the the requests of verse 4 and verse 7. Restore us, O God of salvation. Show us your steadfast love. Grant us your salvation. So the whole paragraph is about salvation, the God of salvation bringing salvation, and the salvation he's talking of is being restored, being revived. And the challenge he gives to God is, will you keep on punishing us forever? Yeah, friends, there are times when it feels like life is going to go on forever as it is, but yet, of course, God does change things does change and turn about our life. And we are called upon to change and to turn. Life is not static and permanent under the God who is the saviour. And then suddenly the psalm changes to a single person. He's no longer talking about ours and yours, but he starts talking about me. And the psalmist wants to hear the word of God. Verse 8, just one verse really I think it is, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. It's as if he's saying, quiet now, let me just listen to what God has to say. Listen to God's word. For sure that God will speak a word of peace to him. A word of peace to them. A word which says you mustn't turn back now to folly. We remember the passage then that Victor read for us just a few moments ago from Isaiah 57, where it speaks of God punishing a man. I was angry, I struck him, I hid my face and was angry. And he went on backsliding to his own way and to his own heart. But then God turns, God changes, God I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of his lips, peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord, I will heal him. But, and here's the contrast that goes with that, but the wicked are like the tossing of the sea, unstable, can't be quiet, you see. The waters toss up mire and dirt, and there's no peace says by God for the wicked. God is going to bring peace to those whom he is punishing. But yet we mustn't assume that that means peace for everybody all the time because if we turn back, there's no peace for the wicked. If we turn back to folly, we have nobody to blame but ourselves. God will bring peace to those who are far away and to those who are at home, for he will save and he will heal even the people he's angry with. But the stubborn refusal of the wicked to ever receive God's peace means there is no peace for the wicked. So here in our psalm, Psalm 85, verse 8, he hears the word of peace and challenges God's people not to be stupid, not to be going back to folly. 
having this assurance of peace, this confidence of God bringing salvation, he finishes the psalm in a praise of the glorious salvation of God, verses 9 through to 13. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. It's a beautiful little poem on the glory of God's salvation. The salvation is not for the fool who keeps on turning back to his folly, but the salvation is for those who fear Yahweh. For them, the fortunes of the land will be restored. For God's glory, God's splendor, that's what the word glory means, means splendor. God's splendor will dwell in the land. That glory of God, that salvation of the God of salvation is then spelt out for us in verses 10 to 13 with all the wonderful words of love and faithfulness, righteousness and peace. But it's not just a list of words. Notice how in verse 10, love and faithfulness meet, or the lovely phrase righteousness and peace kiss. Or in verse 11, the ground with faithfulness rises up to join the sky with righteousness looking down. The Lord gives what is good and the ground gives its increase in response. It's a great little psalm, isn't it? Very short, very little, but it's full of lovely positivity to us too. It's just a marvellous thing, but there is a prosperity misunderstanding that is common in our world today where people don't understand but misunderstand the promises. For there is a live and well the prosperity gospel that teaches that God wants you to prosper. He wants you to be rich. And if you're obedient to him, your business will succeed, your wife will be beautiful, your children will be intelligent, and even your dog will win a prize at the Easter show. All things will happen for you if you just obey the laws of your pastor. So where is the misunderstanding and what is the psalm saying? You see, the problem lies in the reference to the land of Israel. Central to Israel's hope is the promised land. Abram, back in Genesis 12, was promised the land. He never received it, but he looked forward to two things. He looked forward to his offspring owning the land, and he also looked forward to a heavenly city that was beyond the land, that was something more than the land. You'll find that in Hebrews 11. Moses took the people out of Egypt and took them to the promised land and called upon the people to live as God's holy people, to live as God's saints, for that's what the word holy means, to live a separate, distinctive life, Yahweh's life, promising them if they lived as Yahweh's people in Yahweh's land, then he would bestow blessings upon them so that they would live in prosperity and peace all their days. But also promising that if they didn't live as God's holy people, Yahweh would bestow curses upon them so that they would dwell under his wrath and anger and ultimately be kicked out of the promised land as they were 
by the Assyrians in the 8th century and by the Babylonians in the 6th century. This understanding of seeing the, the blessings and the cursings of God upon the obedience and sinfulness reflected in the prosperity and poverty of the land lies behind this psalm. We're not talking about the prosperity of all nations, just of Israel. We're not talking about all lands, just the promised land. The particular prosperity of the nation Israel promised under the old covenant when they came into the promised land. And the key to the prosperity in Israel is not the wealth, but what the wealth symbolises, their dependence upon God as his people, living as the holy people of the holy God, living his way in his land. So notice in this psalm how it's called your land in verse 1. And it's also called our land in verse 9 and verse 12 because these are God's people in God's land. Note also that he wants is the restoration of God's favour. It's not simply I want to be wealthy, I want to be prosperous. It's I want God's blessing. I want to live with God. But the word land can also be translated ground, and it is translated once here ground, that is, it's the ground of all creation. The word, the Hebrew word is like our English word earth. Earth has lots of different meanings. I mean, as soon as you hear earth, you know what earth means, it's very simple, but when you sit down and think about it for a while, earth means different things, all connected but different. I mean, it can mean the whole world, planet earth, as opposed to the sun, for example, it's the earth. It can mean the dirt. Here's a bit of earth. It's dirt, it's dust, it's mud. It can mean that which is under our feet, the the land beneath our feet. I mean, they're all much the same, the planet as opposed to Mars, the earth as opposed to the sky, uh, the dirt that we can pick up. It's all connected to the same stuff, but it actually has slightly different meanings. Well, the Hebrew word for land is like that. It can and usually refers to the promised land. But sometimes it refers to the land as opposed to the sky, such as in verse 11 you see here. And that's why our translators have translated it as ground rather than land. But it's the same word that we have there in the Hebrew. For the God of Israel is the creator of the universe. And when he blesses the promised land as the creator, he will bless the ground with food for the cattle and rain and sunshine for the, for the crops. And so the ground, the land, will give back to God what God gives to it. Here, faithfulness comes up from the ground and is met by the righteousness that comes down from heaven. Like in verse 12, where God gives the good, the sun, the rain, and the earth gives its increase. So, Looking beyond just the land that God has blessed and the prosperity that he's promising Israel, notice what the gospel understanding of this psalm, for that is so much more relevant to us. For within this psalm, there is a constant play on words, great words, which are the key concepts of the gospel. It starts in verse 1, 
with the word translated variously as restore or turn or again. It's the word of turning back. Restore what was there before. Turn back to what you did previously. Go back again to where you were. Once more again, go back to the previous. Sometimes it's asking God to go back. Verse 1, restore. Uh, is Lord, uh, you were fabled and you restored the fortunes of Jacob. And that's the request of verse 4, to restore things. But notice what it's to restore in verse 4. It's to restore us. Turn us back to you. It's the same word, it's the same concept, but it's the concept of going back. Sometimes it's asking God to go back, sometimes it's asking about us, to take us back. It's the word, really, we translate repentance. Repentance is not feeling sorry for your sin. Repentance is to returning back to where you were before. You may feel sorry for your sin. You may not feel sorry for your sin. In fact, repentance doesn't necessarily mean anything to do with sin. Um, I've repented, actually, I have, of eating pizza late at night. Now, you might think that's sin. It's never crossed my mind to be sin. It just gives me nightmares, that's all, and gives me very dry mouth in the next morning, and I don't sleep well that night, so I've repented. I've gone back to the pre-pizza days when I no longer would be eating pizza late at night. Mind you, I still think eight or nine o'clock at night, not late. I can still fit it in there. It's a little definitional at this point, but it's repentance. It's turning back. It's no longer going this way because I'm going to go that way. I'm going to go back to where I was before. And so it's asking God to do again what he did before. It's asking God to turn us back so that we will be like we were before. It is the nature of repentance and it's the word that we have. So God restored the fortunes of Jacob in verse 1 and the psalmist is again asking him to restore it in verse 4, to turn us around. So God turned his anger away in verse 3 and the people mustn't turn away from God in verse 8. There is this dynamic relationship between us and God. That is, our present state is not our final state. There's always opportunity to change and to call upon God to change us and to call upon God to change his attitude towards us. But be careful not to change from better to worse, from wisdom to folly. Secondly, and sadly, There is what scriptures call God's alien and strange work. You find it in Ezekiel and Isaiah. For that is his work of wrath and anger, bringing judgment upon people. By nature, God is loving and kind, merciful and faithful, slow to anger and long-suffering. But because of his love and righteousness, he has this other side, this other work, this strange work, strange to his character, alien to his desires, the work that he has to do to maintain his love. It's the work of judgment and anger. And that is what the psalmist is experiencing, God's wrath, 
God's hot anger in verse 3 and verse 4. That is what he wants God to turn back from. That's what he's saying in verse 5. Will you always be angry with us? Will you be angry forever? It's, it's not your character, God, to be angry. Are you going to go on and on and on forever being angry with us? It's right that you and I feel uncomfortable about God's anger. For it is not his normal demeanour. It's his strange work. But we mustn't withdraw or deny his anger and wrath. For God will punish the wicked. And he will maintain righteousness. For he does love his creation and his people. And he cannot allow his people, his creatures, to be treated unjustly and wrongly and sinfully and oppressively. Uh, Think like a parent for a moment. A parent should not have anger as their normal response to their children. A parent's response to their children should normally be loving, kind, generous, providing, protecting, helping. But... A parent that is never angry with its children will not be treating them justly, will not be teaching them justice, will not teach them the consequences of their wrongdoing, but rather will be raising self-indulgent, self-centred, spoiled brats. Because of the sinfulness of our children, we have to be angry. It's right to be angry. But anger is not to be our character, our normal disposition. If children grow up remembering their parents as always angry, that is very sad, isn't it? You want your children to grow up remembering you as always being loving and kind and gentle. But yet... We must be angry in order to be loving. But turn with the psalmist to what he wants and what God wants, that we turn from our sinfulness, that he restores us, and notice how it is described in verse 6. I love verse 6. Verse 10, verse 6, two of my favourites in this psalm. It's described in this lovely little verse. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? See, what does the new life hold? That we are revived in order that we may be able to rejoice in our football, that we can be revived in order that your people may be able to rejoice in their harbour view, that we're revived in order that people may be able to rejoice in their flat screen television station or their overseas trip. That's not what we're to be revived for. We're revived that your people may rejoice in you. There is to be our chief joy and our chief delight in God himself. In, not in the goodies that he may be giving us, but in the delight that we can have in him. I, I skimmed through very quickly today uh, one of those silly articles where 10 points for 10 ways to... Uh, ten ways to treat the airline stewardess the right way. 
And so I gave this list of 10 things that you should do when you climb on an aeroplane as to when they say hello at the door, make sure you say hello back to them because they say hello to all the people and most people just walk straight past them and it's pretty depressing. But if you say hello back to them, at least you're treating them like a human. So he lists down the 10 things and in most of them he says, and if you do this, you'll get the benefits. They've given me a bottle of wine, they've given me better seats with more leg room, they've done this. In other words... Don't be nice to the stewardess because you should, but be nice to the stewardess because there's advantages in it for you. That's the end point. Well, you're not nice to God so that God will give you good things. That's not it. And think back to the joys and delights in life. Nearly every joy and delight is increased by sharing it with a person you love. Indeed, When you are sufficiently in love, you don't care whether there are any other delights around about you. Just the other person is themselves enough to make life delightful. And so we are to be revived, brought to life again, that we might rejoice in God, in the Lord himself. And so the psalmist describes the salvation and glory in verse 9 of God. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but it's also those who fear him, who have their faith in him, and who look to him for their salvation that he will bring. But when salvation came to Israel, it wasn't just prosperity in the land. Far more importantly, it was that the glory of God dwelt in their land. The people of the world would look at Israel and they would say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Yahweh our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? That was the charter that Moses gave Israel back in Deuteronomy chapter 4. They were to so live that they would be the envy of the other nations. For no other nation had a God like them. No other nation had a righteousness like them. No other nation had an ethics and a morality and a way of life and a justice like them. But that comes from living God's way. And so the time of God's glory and salvation will be marked by this extraordinary verse, verse 10. It's just a wonderful verse, isn't it? Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Uh, Love and faithfulness are two words that capture the very heart of God. Not anger and wrath, they're his strange, alien kind of work. Love and faithfulness, that's what's on his heart. Uh, The love, the steadfast love, is, is the word that we also translate grace, we also translate mercy. It's the love of of generosity, of giving. Uh, Love again is a word that has so many different meanings, doesn't it? You know, I, I love my wife and I love a cabbage. You'll be glad to know I can differentiate the two. Uh, She is glad too. 
and the character of the love I have for my wife, you'll be glad to know, is considerably different to the character of the love I have for cabbage. So what is the love that we're talking of here? It's the love of generosity. It's the love of giving. It's the love, therefore, of grace. It's the love of mercy, pardon, forgiveness. That is the nature of God. He gives to people who do not deserve to have anything given to them. And God is full of grace and truth. Because the word faithfulness is that word of truth. It's the thing you can trust. It's the rock-like confidence of God, the dependability, the reliability of God. It's the truth of God. You can trust God's word because it's trustworthy. You can rely upon God's word because it's reliable. You can depend upon God's word because it's dependable, because God is reliable, dependable, trustworthy, truthful. These two things go together. That's the point of it. Steadfastness, steadfast love and faithfulness go together. That's why you can never love and commit adultery at the same time. Because it's not loving. And it is unfaithfulness. That's the, the opposite then of what is godly. God is full of grace and truth. Full of mercy and dependability. Full of love and faithfulness. And this is what you see in his salvation. For being faithful... He fulfills his promises to save his people. And being loving, he graciously forgives and pardons his people, covering over their sin, paying the price, bearing the cost of their sins himself. But look at the other half of verse 10, which speaks of righteousness and peace, kissing. For God is righteous, just, fair, giving people what they deserve, slow to anger and rightly angry, and yet... In his salvation, this righteousness of God is linked, is kisses his peace. The Jew knew that there was no peace in losing a war. Peace is more than the absence of war or the absence of strife. The peace of God is health and well-being, the harmony and prosperity of, of life. The great Hebrew word is shalom. It's a great greeting word amongst the Jews. It's a word of victory, of, of peace, of harmony. The Jew knew that when the war was over, if you lost the war, you weren't at peace. There's only peace in winning the war. For then you can live in safety and security. Then you can live in harmony with one another. But to lose the war, there's not much peace in loss. In God's salvation, there is peace. That's the message of verse 8. The word of God is peace to his people, to his saints. And that's why the land will be a land of prosperity and wealth because it lives at peace with God and we live at peace with each other in the land. Now, all these ideas find their fulfilment and perfect expression in Jesus. For... As we're preaching here on Sundays about Jesus brings, so we read that Jesus brings salvation. He brings righteousness. He brings peace. He brings love and grace. He brings faithfulness and truth. He brings repentance and restoration. 
He brings revival. It's in the cross that we see peace and righteousness, wrath and mercy, love and faithfulness, salvation and restoration. All these concepts come together in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. For in his resurrection, we find the revival that leads us to rejoice in the Lord. You see, we are lost without him. And facing certain death, we need forgiveness. But God, in his mercy, sent his son into the world to die that we might have his love, mercy, forgiveness. And Jesus was faithful, even unto death. And God raised him to new life, pouring out his spirit upon us to revive us, to give us new life, that we might live now with Jesus as our ruler. Down the bottom of our outline, you'll see on the back there a prayer that takes up those very themes. And I hope you'll take it home and be prayerful about that yourself this week.